Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for coming to this very special session of Nursing Grand Rounds. Um, this is entitled Experiencing Bench-to-Bedside Research, Reflections of the 2015 Inbury Summer Undergraduate Nursing Research Fellows. Um, so I welcome all of you, and I welcome the folks who are joining us uh, online. Before we begin, I have my usual housekeeping tasks to complete. Um, after this program, you will receive an email from the Center for Learning and Professional Development, that what is now, um, what used to be known as the CCEHS, and you will receive a link to an online evaluation. Upon completion of the evaluation, uh, your credit will be automatically posted to your online transcript. We do value your feedback regarding this and all of our programs, and invite you to take a few moments to complete that evaluation. Um, please be sure to sign in, uh, and you must attend at least 80% of this program in order to receive your credit. For those who are viewing online, if you have any questions during the presentation, please email Judy Langhans, and that's judith.m, as in nay, dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org, and she will share your questions with the speaker at the end of the presentation. Also, for folks online, uh, please email Judy within one hour of the completion of the presentation, stating that you did participate in the activity and include your name, degree, and zip code. Uh, there are our instructions on how to access your online transcript by the sign-in sheet here, or for folks online, you can contact Judy directly. We want you to know that none of our speakers, nor any members of the planning committee, have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity, or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. So I forgot to introduce myself to folks. <laughs> but introduce Paula, and I forgot to introduce myself. So I'm Deb Hastings. I direct continuing nursing education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And at this time, I would like to introduce the facilitator for this activity, and actually for, for the program this year, Paula Johnson. And Paula is our director of nursing professional practice here at DH, she will be providing background on the inquiry program and will be introducing our speakers. Paula? So good afternoon. Please um, do help yourself to lunch as we go through this afternoon. Um, so again, welcoming you to our um, now annual reflection of our summer undergraduate research fellowship program. So uh, as Deb indicated, I'll just give a little bit of a context and a little bit about INRI, and then I'll turn it over to the students to talk about their experiences specifically. And at the end, we'll have some opportunity for dialogue and questions. So our, our objective for today is to discuss the unique experiences of our four undergraduate nursing students in this unique practice-based research immersion experience. Uh, our presenters today, as you'll meet, include Caitlin Jackson from Colby Sawyer College, Luna Baiju from Colby Sawyer College, Samantha Blaze from University of New Hampshire and Emily Dwyer from University of New Hampshire. So again, the plan for today is just the general overview, talk a little bit about what INBRI is all about, and then majority of the time spending hearing about the fellows' experiences, um, reflections on what the experience was like, and the opportunity for questions and dialogue at the end. So INBRI, um, as you've heard it called, is, stands for Idea Network of Biological Research Excellence. And really the purpose of this grant was to expand nursing, um, or not even nursing, research capacity across the state, um, as well as continuing the pipeline for graduates and pursuing research backgrounds. 
Um, this also aligns with the Institute of Medicine recommendations on the future of nursing, which, as you know, talk about doubling the number of nurses with doctorates by 2020, increasing the number of PSN prepared nurses. So this also aligns nicely with those recommendations. So initially for um, this experience, it was conceptualized as a 10-week experience, summer research um, immersion. There are three components for the nursing arm of this, which um, includes exposure to nurses in both research uh, and evidence-based <coughs> practice slash quality improvement kind of roles. Um, so the students are matched from the beginning with uh, someone, a nurse researcher. Um, they also spend a period of time with our clinical trials research nurses to understand a bit about that role. And then they also spend some time with some faculty related to evidence-based practice, quality improvement, so sort of that bench-to-bedside um, kind of perspective. And then we also try to provide various other additional experiences um, to kind of supplement that while they're here as well, which they'll talk to you a little bit about today. So this is actually our fifth year of the program, um, and we are very unique uh, in that we are probably, I think, one of the only uh, grantees who actually have a nursing arm to this. Um, so we have, since that first year, made some modifications based on <coughs> student and faculty recommendations over time. So we now have more of an integrated structure. So right from the beginning, in the beginning, we had them meeting with the researcher for three weeks, sort of an evidence-based practice three weeks, clinical trials three weeks. But what we found over time and based on feedback was it's really better to have that integrated experience. So right from the very beginning, they, they meet their faculty around um, the research and the evidence-based practice so that they get that perspective and have more time to really spend um, throughout the 10 weeks. Um, they also, as I said, spend some time with our clinical trials nurses as well. Uh, and they also partner with the biomedical research uh, students through our uh, Dartmouth College participation. Um, and they participate through the college with several after-work activities focusing on sort of professional development, which again, they will tell you a little bit more about. So I would like to take just a moment to say a special thanks to our EVP and research mentors who are listed here, who, who each of um, whom partnered up um, for our students. Our clinical research nurses, Katie Abraham and Corey Haworth, actually helped coordinate that experience, and then the students actually shadowed multiple different clinical trials and nurses in that. And then we have numerous what we call guest faculty. Um, so Heather Blood is our uh, research librarian, um, who is a great supportive piece to this. Um, Peggy Plunkett was uh, both sort of a, a mentor on the EVP side, but she also is a member um, actively in our bioethics committee, and so she was able to provide that additional experience for the students in that way. Um, and then uh, some other folks here participated, again, both in sort of both roles, but Elizabeth was able to do some of our uh, research roundtable topics, uh, Lee Roach as well, and then Mary Wood is a member of our CPHS or IRB, and so she was able to facilitate that experience for and of course, I uh, want to say a very special thanks to Ron Taylor, who's our PI, who's actually here in the audience. Ron, do you want to give a wave? <laughs> um, Bob Maui, who, who is the director there, and then Donna um, Porter and Jen Smith, both of also, little wave, from the audience, who are also our partners over at the college who help us um, facilitate this entire experience. And then also um, our partners over at Synergy, who help also with um, supplementing our funding and other resources. So without further ado, we'll get to the exciting part of the program. So I will turn it over to Caitlin Jackson from Colby Sawyer who will share about her experiences. 
Good morning. I'm Caitlin Jackson, like Paula said, and I'm a junior at Covasori College. The first project I worked on was with Catherine Rodriguez in One West, and we were looking to update the clinical pathway on post-op care of hysterectomy patients. The purpose of this was that the previous clinical pathway was out of date, so the way post-op care is constantly changing nowadays, we wanted to make sure that the practice occurring on the floor was up to the standard guidelines. So our goal was to find the new recommendations and then determine what type of practice was being done on the floor to see if that was a match. Through this project, I had the opportunity to do a literature review in order to get my data. We did a three-month data draw from EDH in order to determine what the practice was on the floor. I also created a staff questionnaire, which I handed out on the floor to kind of get the knowledge that what there was of practice to see what the nurses and LNAs and LPNs understood as the care for post-op. I then cross-examined all of this in order to compile my data and updated the clinical pathway with the new information I had received and then compiled all the data in order to give present as education for the floor, which will then hopefully lead to an update of the practice. I also had the opportunity to observe a robotic and an open hysterectomy um, to kind of understand where my patients were coming from since that was the population I was working with, which was just a fascinating experience because I'd never been to the OR, so just to see all that and to, to see my patients from there in the surgery and then talking about post-op care was just a great experience. What I found was that the, from the <coughs> literature and the staff, everything was relatively aligned with each other, which was positive to see. And the literature showed that a length of stay of less than 24 hours, which is the goal for the patients, was usually associated with a robotic hysterectomy, as well as low pain scores, a quicker um, advancement to regular diet and early ambulation. And then length of stay over 24 hours was associated with an open hysterectomy, poor control of pain, and the inability to tolerate the regular diet and early ambulation. So those were the factors that I wanted to kind of key in on and change in my post-op care. So this is the um, pathway that I updated. So as you can see in the assessment section on top, the bolded ones are what I focused on. And it was kind of a greater assessment by the staff on the floor looking at GI activity, pain control, and the Foley because these were some of the greatest barriers to the patient being discharged in a timely manner. So to have them focus in on these and then also hopefully move the patient along quicker in these steps. And then nutrition and mobility also get the patients to proceed to ambulation and a regular diet sooner and not just waiting for the patient to decide that they're ready, which was another common barrier that we found with the staff questionnaire. The second project I worked on was with Elizabeth McGrath and it was to determine if distress screening leads to necessary referrals with oncology patients. So with this project, I again got to do a literary review as well as attend various meetings, which just helped the overall experience and really helped me to understand everything better. I was able to actually screen GI patients um, for distress using the distress thermometer. I transcribed results. I also got to spend time with Karen Stahler, which is um, who's an advanced practice nurse who specializes in spirituality, which was just a really fascinating aspect to see because I dealt with a little bit with spirituality through the distress, and spirituality just something, as you all know, is not something that's 
really focused on in healthcare, so to talk with her and to see what she deals with was really interesting to see. And then I overall got a great experience of seeing how the pair of oncology, the care of oncology patient works and how it's an extreme team aspect and in order for them to get the best care, the health, um, the health facility needs to work as a team. So the background for my study specifically was that the literature has shown that distress leads to poor quality of life, higher health care costs, more visits to the physician, and is a growing and more recognized problem for oncology patients. Previously, there's been lack of management of the distress due to an overall stigmatization from both the provider and the patient, and a lack of identification of the distress. And then once the distress thermometer was introduced, the screening itself telling us that the patient is distressed is not does not fully lead to the psychological care. So this is the distress thermometer and this is what I use to screen the patients. It's like the pain rating scale in that zero would be no distress and 10 is extreme distress. So this is given to the patient and they would indicate in the last seven days what their level of distress was. And then it's accompanied by this problem list which they would indicate yes or no if they have problems with the intent of then facilitating a conversation with the provider to see how we can deal with those problems. So what I found was out of 107 patients, 39 had a significant level of distress, which was anything above four, and 90% had emotional problems, and 97 had physical problems. So then the bar chart on the top shows what referrals were made. So the majority of referrals, 10, were made from social work for psychosocial needs, and then the green indicates if those were declined by the patients, which again is something we want to look at because if referrals are being declined by the patient, then that's again not helping the patient and we want to understand why. But in this particular population, there wasn't a significant level of um, declines. I then broke up the referrals into the problems from the problem list, so that I had emotional, practical, and physical to see if what referrals were going towards those problems. And I found that down here, 46% in the purple um, of the referrals were emotional problems, which seemed to be a positive trend that of the referrals made, most of them were for the biggest problem, which was emotional. So that was a positive trend to see that the referrals were in the right direction. My recommendations was that further studies be done and perhaps a more in-depth study in which the patient could be followed from that original distress screening all the way throughout their care to see if, now that we made these referrals, did it actually help and was their distress um, lowered. So as Paul said, throughout this experience, we also spent a couple of days with a research nurse and learning about their role and also clinical trials um, overall. So we each got to observe multiple research nurses um, throughout their daily activities. We spent a couple hours in investigative soul pharmacy and learned just kind of everything about the drugs and when they go from the companies to the hospital and that they have to go through the research nurse and they gave us a really good understanding of how that all works. We get to review trial protocols and use inclusion and exclusion criteria in order to see if patients could go on trial and then attend various meetings to see the process again of that clinical trial from trying to establish it and then keeping everything on trial and, and up to code. 
um, so then we also review the informed consent and how going going over that with the patient and and you know <coughs> some of them one of the main things I learned was sometimes the patient's not looking not completely looking at the informed consent but the role of the research nurse is to make sure they look at it because it is extremely important so we learned that the research nurse is extremely important to the to the patient's care in that they're they're the ones determining if a patient can go on trial and then strictly monitoring the care of the patient because everything needs to follow the trial protocol because if it doesn't then that data cannot go back to the company and future patients can't be helped if, if your data from here was not following anything. And not so that's kind of a managerial side, I guess you could say, but they also have to stay with the clinical nursing side in that they're providing the symptom management for the patient. So they cover a wide range of scope of practice. We also had the opportunity to take as much opportunities as we can. So one of the things I did was shadow in areas that interested me, so emergency department and pediatrics. We also attended meetings of the CPHS and IR, um, the bioethics committee, which was, again, just another fascinating thing to see that other side of healthcare, which we wouldn't normally see as student nurses and nurses on the floor. We also had weekly educational sessions in which we met a vast array of, dis of different nurses and got to see where they went in their careers and got ideas on what we could do with our careers. So this whole summer was a great experience and all of these people I could not have done it without so I would just like to thank each and every one of them for the great summer that I had and all the opportunities. So now I'll turn it to you. Good afternoon, I'm Samuna Bechu and I'm from Kovisar College. I'm a junior there. So this summer I worked uh, at DHMC and I worked with two different projects. The first was uh, a quality improvement project and it was a project in which we analyzed the correlation between medication involved in the inpatient psychiatric unit. Uh, my mentor was Peggy Plunkett, who's a nurse clinical specialist in the inpatient psychiatric unit. I also closely worked with Dana Alpert and Maureen Gardella were the supervisor and unit nurse manager in the inpatient psychiatry unit. So a little bit of background about our projects. Uh, so falls, 700, so falls occur, uh, sorry. So there is, according to the Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality, around 700,001 million falls occur, na occur nationally in hospitals uh, and a fall is an adverse is defined as an event in which a person comes from a lower level uh, from a higher level to a lower level inadvertently so falls lead to various fatal and non-fatal injuries in the patients they increase the length of stay of the patients they increase the cost of health care to patients and the hospitals so falls are a big um, problem in hospitals so what we wanted to do was uh, look at different various aspects of falls and as you already know there are various reasons that uh, that increase the fall the risk of falls however in the inpatient unit, psychiatric unit we wanted to look at the medications that were leading to these falls so for what I did was I uh, I did literature review uh, to look at the medications that have already been identified as high-risk medications and out of them mm -hmm. uh, just to name a few some more um, SSRIs uh, antipsychotics, antidepressants, 
And what I also found was polypharmacy, which means taking multiple drugs at the same time, was linked to a higher risk of falls. So what the method um, was, I did a retrospective chart analysis of all the patients who had fallen in the inpatient psychiatric unit in 2015 up to uh, June 1st, which was 16 patients. Uh, we had to exclude one of the patients because uh, the time of the fall was not noted. Uh, so I noted down all the, num the number of medications the patients were taking and also the type of medications that they were on 24 hours before the fall occurred. We and out of all the medications, we noted the ones that, that we deemed as high-risk medications. And our criteria was if the, if the medication had a 10% or a greater risk of causing dizziness or drowsiness, in clinical pharmacology online, we noted those medications. So what we found was that uh, antidepressants and antiepileptic agents were closely related to a higher risk in falls as, they were, as 13 out of the 15 patients and 14 out of the 15 patients in cases of antiepileptic agent, the patients were taking those medications. So that, is, that was one of the results. And the other result was that 14 out of 15 patients were taking more than four drugs, which supports the literature uh, as polypharmacy being one of the risk factors for falls. However, this uh, project was limited as the sample size was very limited. We only had 15, we only looked at 15 charts. So a next step or recommendation would be to look at a larger sample size, maybe over the last five years or 10 years of the patients who have fallen in the inpatient unit. Also, it would be interesting to look at the, the, uh, the charts of patients who are taking the same medications but haven't fallen, just to include the extra variables. And after this project is complete with, uh, with a larger sample size, maybe we can plan interventions with the patients, with the patients' families and the nurses in the units to come up with better interventions to decrease the incidence of falls in the inpatient units. So uh, that was my first uh, project. And the second project I worked was uh, on an EVP evidence-based practice project <coughs> with uh, Deborah Fournier. And it was a project about the non-transfer protocols for MBTI patients. So a little bit of background about, the, about this project. So TBIs, which are traumatic brain injuries, occur every day. And it, is, uh, it has been estimated that 4,700 TBIs occur uh, every day nationally. And 75% of those are considered MBTIs, which are mild traumatic brain injuries. And out of those 10%, all usually have an abnormal head CT when they're brought into the hospitals. So the ongoing standard practice is to transfer any patients with an abnormal head CT to a level one trauma center for observation, as the which the level one trauma hospital in this area is Dartmouth, and none of the hospitals around Dartmouth are certified as a level one trauma hospital, so they are incapable of uh, forming any neurosurgical interventions on patients. So they transfer the patients to Dartmouth. However, the problem is that Dartmouth, as all these patients are transferred here, uh, it has been shown in various studies that have been, it has been shown that the transfer is uh, unnecessary as the neurological intervention when the patient only has a mild traumatic brain injury is very low. It's between 0% to 3%. And this is a problem as it, as it increases the cost 
to the patient of transferring, of coming to another hospital, and also to the hospital itself. And another main problem is the bed availability, as all these beds are been taken by these patients who do not need them. And when we actually have patients who need interventions, we are unable to provide care to those patients. So what we wanted to look at was, we wanted to look at the chart reviews of patients who have been admitted, who have been transferred here for the last five years, uh, just to look at what interventions were done on them, how many days were they here for, and all of those things. So do, while doing this, uh, it was very interesting because I got to actually work on a CP address proposal with Deborah uh, for a year, and we completed it when we submitted it, and we got the uh, approval, and now we're looking at the chart reviews to, to get all these data. So that's where we're at in this project. And then after the completion of this project, the purpose is to establish a protocol here at Dartmouth to not transfer these patients and to better manage these patients at the community hospitals. And then after a year of implementation of this protocol, to do a retrospective analysis of how useful it was to the hospital and to the patients and everything. So those were the two projects I worked on here, and I got to meet a lot of professional people, which was very interesting to look at different viewpoints. And like Caitlin said, all the grand rounds that we went to the clinical trials, um, shadowing, and all of those are very interesting. But my part is also to talk about the other activities we did with the other undergraduate people as a whole, the INRAE. So the first weekend, so to begin with, we started living in Lockline Lodge when we moved in, which was very stressful as there was no internet or <laughs> <laughs> and no uh, transportation between the hospital and the lodge, and it was 30 minutes away. So we had to work with each other to live. <laughs> Which is very interesting because I personally loved it and I wouldn't mind doing it again next year. I mean, for new people, it was a great way to get to know one another better because we weren't talking to other people on our phones and talking to each other. So I, I loved it. Those two weeks were, really got me to know these guys and they're like my family. So, And then after we moved, uh, when we were there, we went to Woods Hole, we, we got to uh, get a tour of the marine biology lab there, of the aquarium, we took a ferry to Martha's Vineyard and these connections and stuff. And then we, when we came back, uh, almost every day we all of us eat dinner together, which is a great bonding experience. And then we go to the docks by the river at the school. And then we take different hikes. One of the hikes we took was the Ball Chill hike in Hanover. And just this past weekend, before the weekend, we, we had our conference at Wen Wentworth by the sea at Portsmouth, and it was a great, great experience. It's, it was only the four of us who were nursing majors representing the whole nursing field, and which was a very proud moment for all of us, and very, it was just interesting because everybody was kind of shocked we were there. <laughs> Didn't expect us, but it was very wonderful, and Samantha presented her poster was great. She was the only nursing uh, nursing professional who was presenting a poster. So it was a great experience for all of us. And this has been a very, very great opportunity for me to meet so many people and learn all these things. And especially for the two of us since we're only juniors, we haven't really had this, had a research class in our school and we take it next fall. So it's really interesting because we know stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> our professor's right there. So, so. But yeah, thank you. <laughs>
And next, uh, Samantha Blaze is going to present you. So I am Samantha Blaze, and I'm a senior nursing student at the <coughs> University of New Hampshire. And this summer, I did two projects, the evidence-based project and a quality improvement one. I'm going to start off with my evidence base. I worked with Bridget Logan, um, and we did an analysis of a phenomenon called giggle incontinence, which might sound a little funny, but it actually is really interesting. So I want to start off with this little uh, fact I found in some of the research that I read. Um, in a survey of 2,000 school children from four different continents, wetting pants in class was the third most stressful event behind losing a parent or going blind. So there you can see how um, traumatic it is to have these incidents. And this relates to giggle incontinence because this phenomenon is um, characterized by a sudden, involuntary, complete emptying of the bladder that's um, it's induced by laughter. And it happens usually in school-aged adolescent girls. So that's how that last quote kind of connects to this. The problem with this is that the um, cause of it is undefined. So there are two schools of thought. One is that it's a neurologically based phenomenon, and the other is that it's physically based. Um, and I found this summer that there's limited, limited evidence to understand this phenomenon. So what I did was I um, did a literature review, and I looked at 14 studies and nine review articles. There was not a lot out there. Um, and then after that, I helped Bridget develop a questionnaire for a study that she's going to be doing this fall, hopefully. We also started writing an IRB proposal, which was a great experience to see actually what goes behind developing a research study. And we started writing a systematic review because there hasn't been one written on this phenomenon, and we thought it would be important to kind of sum up all of the evidence that is out there and present this um, and our aim was just to try to understand giggle incontinence as either neurological or physical to make that next step be treat or towards finding a treatment for these children. So what I found in my literature review that was that the cause of this phenomenon is unclear. Um, there was even question as to whether giggle incontinence is the right term because they haven't studied really what the stimulus is or what the uh, physiology is that causes the complete emptying of the bladder. So it could be an emotional stimulus, like if you're scared to death, you might actually have this phenomenon and it could be linked to laugh, like the same stimulant is, stimulant is laughter. Um, and also because there's no understanding of what causes it, it's hard to understand how to treat it. So. My next steps for this project are to continue working on the systematic review um, past this whole summer experience with Bridget um, to gain IRB approval, hopefully, um, and then maybe to recommend that the researchers take a step back and look at this phenomenon as emotional incontinence and not label it as just giggle to try to see if that will help understand what causes it. My second project, I worked with Karen McCoy in the intensive care nursery on um, exploring the value in obtaining routine gastric residuals in preterm infants on the neonatal intensive care unit. 
So this is a common practice for nurses to do to um, preterm infants on the neonatal intensive care unit, and it's used to um, measure gastric residual volume to monitor for complications such as feeding intolerance or neck. Um, for those of you who don't know what neck is, it's a surgical and gastrointestinal emergency for preterm infants. Um, and it's really feared in the NICU and it's one of the main reasons for this practice. Um, it's also used to help guide decisions for providers to make feeding decisions, whether or not the baby should get a feeding or it should be held. And it's also used to verify correct NG tube placement. So the dilemma with this whole practice is that it's hard for the nurses to understand what the gastric residual actually means <laughs> and for the providers to, under, to make decisions because there are no definitions for what an abnormal gastric residual is. There's no um, standard guideline for what to do when you get an abnormal, abnormal gastric residual. So what I did this summer was I did another literature review um, and also helped Karen develop a survey and sent it to the nursing staff and providers on the NICU. Um, my sample size was 30 nurses and nine providers. And my findings for the literature review were that um, I found three studies that there was no link to um, gastric residuals uh, being associated with feeding outcomes or developing complications. And then on the other hand, there were two studies that did find a link between the two, but there were a lot of confounding variables that made it hard to tell whether it was the fact that the infant had a high gastric residual that um, led to the complication, or if it was actually that there were other risk factors that were present with the infant that caused it. So it was hard to make that link. Um, as for gastric residual color, I looked at green, and um, in all the studies that did mention or look into whether or not green gastric residuals had any link to a complication such as neck, there were no um, associations made. And then for bilious, um, I found two studies that mentioned it and could not find um, a predictive value in finding a gastric residual that was bilious, but I did find that in the presence of clinical symptoms and the baby not looking well and having um, like a distended abdomen or unstable temperature that if they also had a bilious residual that was concerning. And then for blood tinged, I didn't find any of the evidence to support blood tinged being predictive of a complication, but I did find that hemorrhagic um, did have a possible predictive value in determining whether a gastric residual had any link to a complication developing, but this hemorrhagic residual was found on an average of 19 days before the onset of a complication, so it was hard, again, to make that link. Um, and then as for verifying correct NG tube placement, although 100% accurate, x-ray in this population with preterm infants is not practical, and that's what I found. Um, since they can pull the NG tube out, they move around a lot, and they'd be exposed to a lot of radiation. Um, and then I also found in the evidence, it was aligned with what is practiced here at the hospital where 
you use two methods of non-radiological, um, well, you use two methods to verify placement. And these methods can be checking the pH of the gastric residual, um, looking at the centimeter marking on the infant's nose, and also looking at the color of the gastric residual. My survey, um, so I compared the beliefs between nurses and providers, and I found that there was a little bit of a disparity between the nurses and providers on what they thought was concerning for gastric residuals. Um, so as you can see where it says the 0%, that's the providers where they find that just alone a gastric residual might not be as important to predict how they're going to care for the infant, whereas a nurse finds it on this floor finds it concerning. This is where I looked at a comparison between the volumes between nurses and providers. Um, again, you see the blue, the nurses found it really concerning when there was 100% or 50% or more of a gastric residual. Um, and then I marked the other because I found that the majority of nurses and providers also wrote in that they would be only concerned with this volume if um, there were other signs and symptoms of a complication. So it wasn't just relying on the gastric residual. And then blood tinge, green and bilious were the most concerning colors that nurses and providers indicated. So for my next steps, um, I recommend that in the absence of concerning symptoms, eliminating the practice of routine gastric residual evaluation. But if the baby does look concerning, if there are symptoms, it might be actually beneficial to take a to get a gastric residual and look at what is there just to add information to the assessment. Um, also to develop an algorithm to outline indications for obtaining gastric residuals, sharing the results, which I'm gonna be doing tomorrow, to the staff, the nursing staff and providers, to have a conversation about where the disparity comes from, and also to continue with the current practice of checking placement because the evidence does support what is going on, and also future research because it was very limited. So this summer for the activity that I'm covering, every Tuesday and Thursday from 6 to 8, we would have Journal Club Professional Development or GRE classes. So um, every other Tuesday we had professional development and we went over how to write a good resume and CV, how to interview, how to, um, and how to just communicate. Uh, we also practiced poster presentations as well, and it was really helpful for us moving into the workforce. Um, and then also on the alternating Tuesdays, we'd have journal club, which was a little over our head. Um, <laughs> the, the information was really like, dense for what we do as nursing students, but it was kind of cool to see that even though we didn't understand what we were reading in these scientific journals, we were still able to understand the point of the journal and the conclusion by reading the figures. So that I think is really helpful for us in the future because we'll be reading articles on nursing research and we'll be able to understand that if we can understand this. <laughs> so. And then on Thursdays we had GRE classes, which is pretty self-explanatory, but we would just go over test-taking strategies for the GRE that we can sign up to take. And then 
I just had a really awesome summer in general. <laughs> I have a lot up there, but basically what I got out of this experience was I learned how important research is to nursing and how much, even though a lot of what we learn is based off of research at one point, it's always changing. So especially what I learned is that even though I was taught that gastric residuals may be really important to do after, I never really questioned it. And just by questioning it, even though I learned that there's not a lot of evidence out there, it doesn't mean that it's not important, but it also raises more questions for better practice in the future. And then I also had a shadowing opportunities in the emergency department, the PICU, and inpatient pediatrics. And I found my love for pediatrics. <laughs> I loved it there, so. Um, and then just having a great summer with people from all the different sciences was awesome. So next. And then I, these are the people I wanted to acknowledge, um, especially the NRA staff as well, um, and my mentors. And then this was made possible by the NRA IDEA program. Emily. Hello everybody. As Sandy said, my name is Emily Dwyer and I'm also a senior nursing student at UNH. The first project I worked on was with Mary Catherine Wells in the medical specialties units. Um, it's a hemodialysis quality improvement project. <clears throat> um, it's important to look at because over 450,000 patients received hemodialysis just last year. It's a, a treatment that's becoming more and more prevalent. Um, in looking at their care at Dartmouth, um, they do not receive dialysis on unit. They're transported to the dialysis unit and remain there for the entirety of their treatment, which is approximately three to five hours. And their primary nurse needs to be prepared to prepare their patient for dialysis in the morning and provide appropriate care upon their return. So the goal of this project was to create a procedure to standardize this care and overall improve the quality of the care received by the patients. So the first step is to complete a literature review and determine best practice. Um, there was a surprising lack of evidence on pre- and post-care for dialysis patients, so we um, kind of played the hunting work with what we had, but then as a group we developed a procedure which is now in the process of being reviewed and um, into practice. In addition, we're, look, we're currently working on developing a job aid, which is a guideline um, for medication administration around dialysis, because as it is, um, it's a bit of a struggle for nurses to determine what meds they're giving and which they're holding. In addition, while I was on the med specialty units, um, I was part of their uh, conducting their CLABSI tracers. Um, it's a central line associated bloodstream infections are a great concern for patients who have central lines. And to try and prevent these, um, the hospital has every day each central line dressing is assessed um, for its integrity, and nurses are asked about their care of central lines. And in addition, the necessity of the line is assessed. Um, and if there is not an evidence based reason for the line, um, a dialogue is opened up with the nurse and between the nurse and their medical team. Um, as a student, this was a very interesting opportunity to have because I felt out of place asking nurses about their practice and questioning their practice and giving them education. And then it was very rewarding for after you talk to them about the necessity of a pick line, having them come back to you an hour later and say, I talked to their team and it's coming out. Um, so that was a leadership opportunity that was new. Um, my second project was working with Karen Secord in the neurology clinic, looking at um, the impact of an epilepsy self-management program on healthcare utilization. 
Hopscotch, which stands for Home-Based Self-Management and Cognitive Training Changes Lives, um, is a program for patients with epilepsy that have memory impairment, and it was developed at Dartmouth and receives funding from the CDC. And its purpose is to improve the memory and attention of those with epilepsy. Um, the initial study found it to be successful, and it was my task this summer to look at the cost-effectiveness of the program. And we chose to assess that by looking at healthcare utilization. Um, 57 patients completed the study, and so I did a, a retrospective chart analysis with these patients and looked at every healthcare interaction they had six months before the intervention and six months after. Um, these included phone calls, visits, admissions, the whole spectrum really. Um, in addition, we looked at the subgroup of patients that we deemed high frequency. These were patients that utilized the system more than five times in the initial six months. And another bit of a proud moment was I analyzed my own data using SPSS, which with the guidance of <laughs> people, there's still a proud moment. <laughs> oh, the colors changed. That was awesome. They were much prettier before, I promise. But um, in looking at the results, the intervention groups as a whole um, do not have a statistically significant decrease in the number of interactions. However, when looking at the high frequency group, there was a statistically significant decrease, and my numbers got cut off, which is kind of sad. In any event, so it was, it was positive in that regard. In addition, every time these patients come to clinic, they complete depression and quality of life surveys. Um, and we looked at these results and their number of healthcare interactions and found that before the intervention, there were correlations between them. Um, however, after the intervention, there was no correlation between depression and quality of life and their number of neurology interactions. So the thought was that patients were better, to, uh, better able to self-manage their depression, <coughs> although we can't say So while all patients with epilepsy and memory impairment may benefit from the intervention, we conclude that it's particularly helpful for those with a greater than average number of healthcare interactions. But further research is needed with larger sample sizes to further validate the results. And then I had a, a couple of different shadow experiences while I was here. I have a particular interest in critical care and was able to spend a day on Four South um, and really just enjoyed soaking up the environment. And then another day I had the chance to go and observe the intracranial electrode placement um, in a pediatric patient with epilepsy. And first of all, we were now going to see brain surgery while we were here. But then um, it was a great experience just being be able to see the anatomy and having someone walk you through the entire surgery. It was a nice experience. And then kind of just a, a summary of ISERP and Embry. We had a, a number of opportunities over the summer. Um, we all participated in research and quality improvement projects. Um, we're able to explore many different areas of nursing, make professional connections. Um, and then outside of the hospital, we had uh, many opportunities for professional development, as Sandy mentioned. And we essentially got to live with a whole group of undergraduate researchers and have the summer together. So it was a, that was an opportunity in and of itself. And now, if you guys want to come up for questions and answers. So does anybody have any questions for our esteemed students? Comments? That was all very, very interesting topics that you chose. I was fairly interested in the giggle and continence part. And the part that I wanted to ask was, you said neurological and physical, that those were the two, but neurological is physical. Were you thinking psychological or mechanical? More, um, yeah, so the, 
the physical side, I'm more focused on the muscles, like the pelvic floor muscles. Oh, okay. In that the, there's weakness there, that's one school of thought. The neurological is more psychological. So being unable to stop the voiding from occurring during that laughter, not okay. being able to control that. Okay, thank you. So what was, uh, how, how do you think this has impacted you, the, this experience uh, relative to your classmates? Have you had a chance to talk to colleagues who didn't go through this program and how do you, what's your sense of how it might have? Impacted? I would say, at least definitely for us two as juniors, most of our colleagues are working on CNAs and LNAs and that's certainly extremely different than what we did. So we may be almost lacking in that clinical hands-on experience, but like from talking to them, they've been telling them what we do, they're amazed that we've done all these different experiences, and although we may need to catch up on that side, we've had so much different experiences that they can't even understand, and we never could have imagined, so it's definitely something that, you know, not puts us down there, but then like puts us way up here, and it's just two different levels almost. And I think the program really is pushing us to look into how we can further our education as nurses, and it's giving us kind of an inside look at what graduate degrees in nursing can do. I think the difference, I know um, one, or one of my friends is actually doing another internship here, and it's more clinically based. She's shadowing a nurse, um, and from that she got a lot of clinical experience that I may have missed out, as Caitlin said, but I also now have more of a direction of where I want to go in nursing. I know the back, uh, well the background of nursing in general is to be on top of research and to always question what you're doing, make sure it's the right thing, and I don't think I would have got, gotten that experience from just a clinical one, so. For me, what I liked about this whole experience was how we got to look at nursing as a whole picture, like the research part, the clinical part, like every, the administrative part, everything, because when we're in class and when we do clinicals and stuff, I never thought there was this other part that is so big in nursing. For me, whenever I thought of nursing, it was just going and taking care of patients in the inpatient unit. That was all that I thought about it. Also coming from a different country, I guess, because we don't really do research in my country either. So just coming here and realizing that th there's a part, but even for, honestly, for me, I, I would think this is even bigger than the inpatient because this drives everything. So just knowing that this exists and going back to nursing school two more years of nursing school with this mindset is just When you go back to school, will you recruit, be helping to recruit next summers? <laughs> yeah, we definitely want to do, do, like, do a presentation like this and get them to understand what we did and try to make them see that. Because initially a lot of them were always like, oh, like that's research, like I don't want to do that. But like what, as our idea of research from like school is completely different. No one knows what nursing research yeah. is, that it's not whatever they think it is. So we definitely want to change their perspective. Students as far as increasing their learning, but we've also learned that our faculty really 
um, have gained a lot from this, both from sort of the teaching aspects, of course, which we do normally as an academic medical center, but also um, the either initiation of or moving toward completion of either research studies or EDP projects that wouldn't otherwise happen. So, you know, um, we hear right from the start from the students from the interview process, you know, what they're interested in, the fact that they're going to be working pretty autonomously when they come to the welcome breakfast and we lay out, you know, you're going to do a poster presentation, you're going to do a grand rounds, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, and their eyes just kind of get big. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> you know, how many of you are terrified about that? But you can actually see, obviously, you know, between the, you didn't get to, a chance to see um, their poster presentations that they also did for the statewide and conference that they alluded to this last weekend. Um, but, you know, you can see the development of these skill sets. And um, so, again, wanting to thank all of you for participating in this. And I hope that your objectives were met, but also to acknowledge the fact of how far you've actually moved a lot of nursing practice, quality improvement research, you know, forward here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock in the 10 weeks that, you know, 10 weeks if you think about that, how much time. Um, so any of the faculty that want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Sure. So this is my third year in having a student, and I can't tell you how much I look forward to this every single summer because you bring such enthusiasm, and I know that there's always been this one project in the back burner that we just can't get to, so I'm always so excited when you guys arrive, and you do such a nice job. You're such a thorough review and so very thoughtful, and so um, you, you do tremendous work, and it's very meaningful work to all of us because I think all of us who work with you will be going back to our respective clinical areas now and saying, okay, look, here's the evidence. Now let's look at some potential practice changes. So what you've done over the summer is really uh, going to contribute um, um, very, very much uh, to, to the nursing practice. So, so thank you, all of you. So given your fabulous summer experience, would you all consider coming here <laughs> I guess I just would add to what Karen said, um, I'm amazed by the amount of work that you get done in a very short period of time, knowing that, that you all had other projects going on as well, and so I very much appreciate the time and effort that you all put into helping us move our nursing practice forward. So one of the things that we do is continue to, to keep in touch with our Embry students over time. So over the last five years, you know, we have had almost 100% of them do come work for us after. Several of them have gone into already to graduate school from our first initial cohorts. Um, and many of them continue on. So if they have a practice service in the practicum or some other school-related project, um, and they have the opportunity to continue, because often what happens, um, and students can speak to this as well, is, you know, they get immersed in this, they get exposure to it they get excited and passionate about it and then at the end of the 10 weeks you know they're, they're leaving mm -hmm. so many times um, they will continue to stay in touch with our faculty to either continue that work as they go back to school and or several have actually published articles with our faculty have presented their posters in other forums um, so this is again a great opportunity in that regard as well um, so I just want to acknowledge that as well so thank you very much students further questions everybody can feel free to mingle please help yourself to lunch and food um, and have the opportunity to ask some more questions as well thank you very much <laughs>